Gaming MBS episode 182 coming to you Wednesday, March 14th, 2018. Welcome to Gaming NBS. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, folks. Glad to have you all on board. Whew. So Sean was smarter than me. He took today off. We were at Gary Con, And I'm like, nah, I'm tough. I can go right back to work. That was just stupid, dude. I'm not doing that again. <laughs> I figured it'd be fine. I'm like, I'm leaving plenty of time. Get home, take a nap. Ah, kick it right in. No, no, I'm not doing that again. That was just dumb. You, I'm assuming, just slept, had a coffee, went back to bed. Something like that. Pretty much. Nice. Yeah. Pretty close. You've got a look on your face that says that's not what happened. but uh, I had to run an errand, but that was about it. Oh, that's nothing. Grabbed lunch. It was a low-key day. Just got a nap. Took a nap. That'd been nice. Right yeah. about noon, I'm like, oh, Christ, there's nothing in the tank. This sucks. Yeah. Well, speaking of Gary Con, we don't want to do, like, full-on... Hardcore recap. <laughs> Excuse me, because what would happen is I would end up, Sean would also end up, we'd end up listening, listing people we met and said hi to and then forgetting other people we probably spent a huge amount of time with. So right. there were a bunch of BSers that came out of the woodwork. Um, folks just sat down to play when Dave Beatty ran his uh, Dark Trails game, which is freaking awesome. I can't wait for that thing to come to hit Kickstarter. We talked there and like three or four guys like, oh, you're Brett. Oh, this is so cool. And. It was really, really nice, and there were a lot of good people that we've met before over the years. Uh, you knew half these guys long before I ever got to Gary Con, but it was just great. I explained it to one of the guys as this is the high school reunion I always wanted to go to, where it's full of people I like. All <laughs> 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 have similar interests. No, we're not going to get mad at each other. No one's going to nothing stupid is going to happen. No one's going to remember that time or whatever. So it was. Uh, I had a damn good time, Sean. Did you? Did you? Have oh fun? yeah, yeah. Good. It was great. Was Played some good. games. Played in Breath's Wraith game. You did. You died, freaky, of course. Freaky, freaky, freaky. With Hubs, Scott yeah, Hubs. True. Yeah. I knew Scott Hubs before he was Jason Hobbs. That's right. It's before he changed his name to Movie Star. <laughs> Jason Hobbs from Hobbs and Friends of the OSR. And uh, you got to play with my son, AJ. I did. AJ ran a game. Damn fine GM, that guy. He did pretty good. That's right. I'm proud, I'm proud of him. He did well. And I did get to uh, uh, AJ. My wife surprised me and brought AJ to the con on Saturday. <coughs> excuse me. My daughter one was hanging out with my other three girls. My other two girls. Excuse me. I wanted three girls. So Ilana and the two big girls were hanging out. But AJ wanted to come because apparently he's a hardcore crazy gamer kid. And, uh, yeah, I ran an Avalon game, my iron shoes for him. Ray Otis was in that, and Wayne Humphleet, and uh, Chris Steele. It was a lot of fun. And then AJ said, I want to run a game. So I wrangled up some more players, and we sat back down and played later in the evening. So it was cool. Very, very cool. And Sean actually got to, uh, my wife was in that last game. You got to play in AJ's game with Susan, so it was That's cool. right, I did. Yeah. It's the yeah. second female I've ever played a game with. Are you serious? No. I was going to say, that, that doesn't make any sense, because Sydney was in there. Chris Steele's wife, Sydney That's was there, That's true. Too. So it was good. It was a hell of a lot of fun. And uh, to everybody who we met there and had a chance to talk to, thank you very, very much for taking the time to even just recognize us and come over and say something nice. Because uh, people could have come over. Yes, yes, absolutely. Could have had plenty of people come over and say, you suck! But uh, anyone who thought that was polite enough to keep it to themselves and not ruin our weekend, so that was nice. But anyway, damn good time. Damn good time. Yeah. All right. Let's roll into it, man. All right, let's get into Random Encounter. All right, all emails this week. Who wants to start? Brett, you want to start? Yeah. (coughs) Good Lord. Ah, Yeah. Apparently, um, my voice is cracking. Yes, I will. Edwin Nagy writes in and says, I'm going to be an adversarial listener for a moment. Brett, when you were talking about how your story has to go on, even if the players don't want anything to do with it, I had flashes to the previous episode, or maybe even earlier in this one, where y'all were complaining about players saying, that's what my character, that's what it says on my character sheet. That's what my character would do. That's what I wrote down on my notes. That's what my world would do. 
I don't care if your players are more interested in fighting undead. There's a couple of army coming to raid the town. If you ignore the hints and hooks, there's going to be consequences. Which is awesomeness, because what you describes is exactly how I GM. The world is doing its thing. If the PCs miss it, well, there's going to be trouble. I have visions of reacting to the PCs in a deeper way and making the story wrap around them, but that's hard work. Plus, there's this great plot happening. On a related note, I don't uh, think having the, the world wrap around the PCs and their interests, which probably really, and importantly, represents the player's interest, means that the PCs have to start or even ever be big dang heroes. It can be a small world wrapping itself around the PCs, and you and the players can just ignore the big bad. Maybe the big bads don't exist until the PCs achieve big good status and the players want something to fight against. So thanks as usual, the show got me thinking. Rock on, you snowflake GM with your precious plot, Edwin. And he also mentions that, by the way, big bads, quote-unquote big bads, autocracks to big bass. So that's going to make a great campaign ender someday. I'm assuming if you uh, go in, there'll be a big Bassmasters tournament at the end of one of Edwin's uh, Swords and Wizardry games, and uh, you'll fight the Colossal Mouth Bass, which will leap from the water, and it'll be a huge brawl. So I'm looking forward to that adventure when he's done writing it. Sean? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Big, b- big bass yep. evil guy. Yeah, and the evil guy will have those fish on the wall that sing, don't worry. Yeah, they'll, they'll have one of those. Oh, yeah, on yeah. The wall. Yeah, yeah. The singing, singing fish. bass. The yeah, singing bass a little bit. Oh, yeah. The shit writes itself. I love it. Edwin's just spitting diamonds as usual. Yeah. All right, over to you, Sean. Blake Ryan. Good day, fellas. Remade for the characters. I think you want a balance, but this balance is unique to the group and needs to be sorted out in session zero and recapped if a new player joins. If the world doesn't change from PC actions, then they have no incentive to try. One of the attractions of escapism in gaming is the ability to make a difference, to have more agency. The world changes too much, then you lose incentive because it's too easy. There is no challenge. The game goes from ongoing interaction to wish fulfillment, which, without effort, quickly loses its worth. In one game, they were caught between three factions who were dealing with an end-of-the-world prophecy. By 7th level, the heroes were taking less interest in the plots. I tried changing the combat social puzzle ratio. No effect. I tried changing the reward types. No effect. When I confronted the players, they said they did not want a big plot like Dragonlance or Lord of the Rings. They wanted Morrowind style with 12 small quests from 6 competing factions. They did not want to change the world greatly or for it to change without them. In another game, I had the heroes be descendants of gods. They got special abilities at 3rd, 6th, ninth, etc., and some monstrous followers. Did this make them show interest in their subplot tied to their parents or parents' rivals? No. Did they value their gifts? No. Did they step up and become heroes for the region? No. They did the bare minimum and retreated back to their fort after each quest. (laughs) I'm sorry. Yeah, the kids didn't work hard for nothing. They don't appreciate things. They just are given. Anyway, carry on. Uh, they were given agency, but they didn't use it because they wanted to do things when it suited them, not when it was expected or required. That group wanted that group wanted less realistic world interaction and more game mode style. In every game, I have followed up events to to adventures. In every game, I have follow up events to adventures. This shows the world is interactive and not a PC-centric vacuum. However, if the heroes show no interest in the follow-up event, I give them other plots to delve into. Then later on, I point out that things are escalating between two forces involved in the ignored plot. If they don't get involved, they will have to get out of the area. The choice is theirs. You know, this is interesting, Blake, and I think what you just described there, my first thought is... These guys are basically running a West Marches game on you, right? Yeah. It's not like a... He, they're, they're doing the West Marches. He's not running. Exactly. They're totally... <laughs> Here's Sean. Hey, hey, I should run some West Marches. Here's a group of players like, I don't care what fucking DM does. We're running West Marches, bitches. This is what we do. But that's kind of what they're doing, right? They want to do it at their own pace, at their own whatever. Hey, I want to go to the desert. I want to go over here. I want to go over there. And uh, not that that's wrong, unless it's driving... <clears throat> Poor Blake, absolutely bananas. He wants to hit him with a jar of Vegemite or something. But I, th- I, th- I think what he's seeing is that it's very true. You want to balance, 
and it's unique to each group. It needs to be sorted out in session zero and recapped if the new player joins. I honestly think, Blake, you've hit on some really good stuff there, and I, I would even add recapped if a new player joins, and I would also put a parenthetical or from time to time as the, as the uh, group warrants it because you'll have those moments where you game, 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 a month goes by because schedules go to shit, and then you come back. Sometimes it's a good idea to remind people that. I think your approach there is um, it's pretty good. You know, having to follow up to adventures, um, the world is interactive, not PC-centric vacuum. But, they, you know, they're, they're free to ignore that shit. They want to. And if they don't, they better leave or that stuff's going to come down on them like a big old box of bricks. So, cool, man. I like that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. What's up next here? Christopher Gray. He said, Brett's right. I'll wait for a sec while you play soundboard effect. What do you got there, Sean? (laughs) But he says, actually, Sean's right, too. What? Whoa, says Christopher. I bet you didn't see that coming. Regarding made for the players or not, made for player characters or not, I have to say that my default, default position is that the world exists whether or not the characters do. And as they impact the world through their actions, it starts paying attention, like what Brett said. However, just because the world is persistent doesn't mean the characters have to know what happened with every plot hook they discarded, as Sean said. In my view, it's important for the GM to know generally what the world is doing, whether or not players interact with certain things. This, for me, is a form of prep. As long as I know what most everyone in the NPC is up to in NPC land, then the characters make a sudden hard right turn, I'll know what they find. Recently, I've been sucked in and swallowed by stars without number. I can't handle how awesome this game is. One of the best parts of it is the array of Game Master tools, which are actually system agnostic and can be used in any game. One of these tools is a super slick faction system. Essentially, what it does is it allows GMs to play mini-games that determine what, which, <clears throat> what various factions are up to during a campaign. You can have set moves you can make as a faction, along with resources and goals and can take turns to find out what each faction does in a round. So when you're back at the table, the players may hear that Star System British accent has launched into invasion against American accent rebels and lost the battle. This has nothing to do with them, worked without them, yet develops the world to make it living and active. That could yield plenty of hooks, and whether or not the players want to go with them, they still happened. But just because it still happened doesn't mean the players need to know or care about it, just like in real life. Good job, fellas, and speak soon. You know, Christopher, I think... Um, yeah, I think you're right. That is, it is a form of prep. I had not thought of that. But I think that's a, a piece in my head, even if it's just bits and, bits and chunks. How, how deep you go into that prep of making sure what the key NPCs are doing, what the, how the overall world around the characters is operating, is indeed a form of preparation. If that's a, th- a thing in a way that you help to keep the world alive, I think that's very true. Good stuff, man. Sean, you got anything on that one? I think it was yeah, no, good. That, that's great stuff. It was very good. Oh, I lost my mouse here. Did you? Well, that's no good. We'll pick it up. Let's get. We got a main topic to get to, oh, brother. Yeah, main Let's go. topic. All right, Brett. So, I wanted to last uh, last episode. I mentioned we were talking about making old things new. And when Sean and I were at GaryCon over breakfast, I brought up kind of more detail of what I meant by that. So what I'm talking about here is talking about those quote-unquote old settings, those adventures and so on, the ones that are for previous editions of your favorite game. Early Call of Cthulhu, um, D&D, of course, is a, a fa- favorite one, but <clears throat> you can have old Traveler stuff, you can have old GURP stuff, old anything, right? But you see the thing, wow, that'd be really cool to use with this newer version. Do you really need... This is what I want to talk about. Do you really need to work to convert them? I'm talking about not from system to system, not like taking a Pathfinder Adventure Path and then porting it over to um, Savage Worlds, for instance. That, I would argue, probably requires more actual work. But in this case, I'm wondering, um, do you, how much work do you really need to do to convert them? Or can you use these things as is? Or you know, does it depend entirely on what you plan to do with the source material? So... This actually stemmed from a while back. Sean had mentioned to me one of the things he liked was the midnight setting. I think that's a 3035 setting, right, Sean? Correct. I, I grabbed the book off of somebody I know who was uh, downsizing. I paid like hardly anything for it. I'm like, ah, oh, cool, I'll have it. Now it's sitting on my shelf, but I've got it. Anyway, and he said, I'd like to use that for 5e. <clears throat> and I said, oh, cool, go ahead. He said, ah, but I have to do some conversion on it. 
we got talking back and forth and my general stance is you don't have to do a lot of conversion. You can just kind of roll with it. And then we got into nits and nats and forgot about that topic. And I thought, you know, let's, let's drag that one out because at, if nothing else, I knew that at GaryCon, I'd be getting my hands on the Into the Borderlands, which is a 5th edition conversion and classic homage to B1 in Search of the Unknown and B2 Keep in the Borderlands. It is that massive, if you follow the other Sean or I on the uh, social media places, there is, it's like 370-plus pages of adventure stuff. It's intense. There's lots and lots of stuff in there. The original modules, the uh, converted versions, all this cool stuff. So great, Goodman Games did this really cool thing. I'm a sucker for big tomes that fit on my shelf. God, gotta have it, get it. And then you think, ah, do I do I need to convert every adventure I have, and so on. So, Sean, um, let's see. I guess my first thought is I've got a couple bullets here that I was thinking is kind of like conversation starters for this one. I, I think when we first start start talking about taking Midnight and converting it to 5e. My comment was, it's pretty. 5e is actually fairly backwards compatible because you have hit points, you have saving throws, and you have um, a, a sending armor class. You've got a sending armor class. You don't have to worry about going. Oh, it's a negative four equals a uh, 22 or something like that. So I'm like, ah, how hard could it be? But you had some points around challenges and how it could lead to kind of a disproportionate amount of either monsters getting slaughtered senselessly or players getting slaughtered senselessly. So, do you want to tell me more, Sean? So, tell first me more. of all, are we only talking about 3-0 to 5-0? No, I'm, I'm talking about other ones. I just wanted to talk... I guess my question here is, is the... Does it matter how much work you have to do depending on the backwards compatibility of certain things? Or maybe... Yeah. Or, and that, that's just one point here. I mean, there's... <clears throat> sometimes... And maybe it's more of a matter of how you intend to use it is the biggest question to ask, right? If you're just going to use it for names, places, and maps, then it doesn't matter at all, right? No. Right. So if you want to use it as system agnostic, sure. But if you're using um, monsters that are inherent to the setting or particular spell effects that are inherent to the setting, um, then there's a conver- I think there has to be a conversion. To some degree, but I mean, you could. Is that because you, you want to balance it out for your pretty little players? Kind of, <laughs> kind of. Well, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to have like, um, oh, save or die, which isn't in this particular instance, versus um, something that could have been nerfed from one edition to the next. Um, so it, some of it has to do with balance, pro- mostly probably, uh, and the fact that. There, I think if you don't look at it, it either becomes overly simplified or it's overly uh, difficult. Okay. So if we take something like in 5e, kobolds, for example, and goblins. Yeah. Right. And <clears throat> they've made a number of changes since way back in the day yeah. when they were little things you kind of squished and just moved past. Or at least that's how we often see them. So, yeah, I get that. That totally makes sense. So are you worried about... Some but, of them aren't that big a deal. I mean, if you yeah. were to play Midnight and they had goblins and your first level and they had goblins in there and you're throwing them at first level characters, then I don't think it's a big deal because the characters have been converted and therefore you pull out the goblins of 5e and everything's fine. Okay, so I have, I've seen online and I've talked to other people like, I went through, so-and-so says, I went through the whole module and converted everything to 5e. And my first thought was, holy fucker balls, that's a lot of work, whatever yeah. the module is. Right. Um, <clears throat> I do have a copy of uh, Tales from the Yawning Portal, so I, you know, and, of course, the Borderlands book. So um, I don't devalue necessarily the uh, the conversion work. I just don't feel necessarily like putting a ton of work into myself. So my first thought is, if it's goblins to goblins, yeah, I'll just look up the new goblin and use that sucker. Right. However, I believe when we started talking, one of the things that drew you to midnight were some of the special pieces and parts and like different classes and races. And that's where we kind of got to not the throw down per se, but that's where I think you were leaning heavily on the, it's more important to make sure those things are converted so that they have the proper oomph in the, in the setting. Am I right? Correct. So if you're converting a legate, um, uh, 
I'd have to look up some of these nuances, but if you, you know, they're a, uh, a servant of the dark Lord in midnight and they are quite feared in the, uh, setting. They come to town and, and, uh, their, their rule is law and they're enforcing, uh, the, the whims of the, the dark Lord. And if, if you don't have certain things in place or you don't convey them in a particular manner. So say you say, okay, they're bad, they're big, they're, you know, kick-ass, and the players have never played in this setting, and they're new to it, and they're kind of conveyed that, and then they decide, you know what, we're just going to kill that person when they come to town with their, you know, rhetoric, and then they just wipe them off the face of the earth, uh, or in this case, the face of the setting, (laughs) then... It loses it. I think it loses quite a bit of what the setting is about. That's a good point. You know, if you take if you took like Middle Earth and use a ring wraith, you say, "Well, it says wraith. Yeah. It says wraith in the title. It's a freaking wraith." And if I have fifth old cleric goes be gone and it just runs off, you're like, "Ah, right. that's uh, that seems a little wussy." Right. <laughs> What's the deal with that? Get back here, you pansy. Um, yeah, I get that. <laughs> now, one that argument sense. would be one argument would be. You can make them bigger badass without actually converting them. Like yeah, number per number it was what you're you're going after, Brett. Where you would be, well, I just I arbitrarily you know double their hit points and give them some nasty nasty spells, and I I roll a couple dice behind the screen and say, okay, uh, everything's dark now, and you can't see and you can't do anything, and it's this massive darkness. Whether that's even in part of their uh, stat block. Yeah, the you, could, do, you could totally know, do that. Yeah, right. Yeah. <clears throat> the other thing I I remember we talked about this a little bit is in like you know if the stat block has this being creature whatever can do X right so you're playing an old version of Star Wars and it says this thing can do X and you know what the effect is and this is easier you can in, inflict the same effect in the newer with the newer system like hey it causes you to go blind okay you're blind or whatever the case is. I think that being able to do some of that on the fly, and the more I've been noodling this over, is I think you have to have a decent level of system mastery between versions, right? If you don't understand how the second edition AD&D adventure worked, you know, how the rules did what they were supposed to do, even if you do want to say, ah, fuck the rules, ah, whatever, for balance, there's a level of consistency you want to maintain, you have, that you want to maintain, or at least fear factor, right? This Tarask is different than the last Tarask, and if you use it the wrong way, it's just a big wuss, you know, and then you knock it down and take its lunch money. Right. So that definitely makes sense. I think especially for those big set pieces, right, the setting creature like that, the Legates, as you said, or even a Tarask, something a big, you know, the big monster at the end type of thing. I could definitely see one to put the, the conversion time in to make sure that's got as much oomph as it needs. That makes yeah. sense. And some monsters aren't one for one, right? They don't have all the same monsters that you'll find in a monster manual. That's true. So if you go on to convert it, it would be behoove you to at least take a look at it and determine, oh, this one's easy. It's, you know, the you know, shadow dogs of war. All right, they're they don't do much, they do some damage, whatever. I can you know, they they look like throwaway critters. I've read the module, not a big deal. The shadow dogs of war will charge out, they'll Characters will mop them up. Who cares? That's kind of what they're there for. So, <clears throat> excuse me, understanding that old adventure or that what what's going, what is uh, what the creature's there to do. Right. Right. If the legate shows up as you describe, it's supposed to be a badass son of a bitch. Then the badass son of a bitch should show up, and she should be like, "Look, I am here," and everyone should be quaking in fear or whatever the case is. And I think even things like that. Then, if you talk about fear. I say, oh, it causes fear. <laughs> what fear did in multiple editions of D&D, for example, are kind of different. Something like cause fear as dragons. You'd flip up drag. Oh, it's like a dragon fear. Oh, cause fear as spell or whatever. Right. So depending what it would do, it does. If you have a game system that is now more tight or, or tighter and has more consistency in, in effects, it would behoove you to make sure that, wow, this legate shows up and the legate should be able to say boo, and everybody, according to this little blurb in the text box, says runs away for 
five hours. And the way fear works now is if you save, there's no problem. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Do you think is um <clears throat> is it all and um, use balance probably? Uh, I, I know I have a or regular disdain for like encounter balance and stuff, but it feels like in this case though it makes more sense. It's not even for balance against the party, but just so that the 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 beings within the setting have the proper balance there, right? So that the one that's supposed to be the big bad has the big bad oomph. Because well, right. You don't know what's you don't know what is overpowered or underpowered if you don't ha- if you don't know what balance is. And I mean, you that's the funny thing, Brett. You don't have to play balanced encounters, but you sure as hell have to understand who could put the big hurt on the player characters and who may not be fit to do that. You know, that's a damn good point. You know, the only way to really disdain balance is to understand it, right? Right. I can. I can. <laughs> the only way I can really disdain it and say I don't. I don't need to do that, is because you know what it is. I know exactly what it is, and I know when to pull back and how to enforce it on my own, and thus and such. Wow. Yeah. I, dude, you're the know, you're right? of the Kelly. Like, we're we're late. I should have talked about this and the balance encounters crap. But now that we're we're dealing with a setting that may not be known. Right, that's even like in DCC and other games where you're playing and you're not sure what the monsters are because I think we all inherently kind of have an idea of how most modules are set up or most monsters, you know. But I mean, I mean, for example, we talk about the lich and walking in the lich at first level. We all know the lich is going to put the hammer down. Yeah, but if you so, sorry, keep but, going. but if you don't, but if you don't know what it's, it's an actual lich. <laughs> Good point. How do you know if uh, the the GM is is balancing the encounter and looking out for that versus I'm not concerned with balance because the lich isn't there to to hack up the party lickety split or we don't know that it's a lich and therefore the party should run in fear. Okay, all right. No, I like that. Ooh, wisdom, wisdom yeah, from yeah. Sean. That's yeah, stuff, man. Right? I'm all, I, I've been hanging around gamers and games all weekend, man. It's like it's been shoved down my throat and <laughs> put into my brain. I've been deprogrammed from adulting for four days. And Isn't that nice? <laughs> you know, it is. It's like now I'm fired up to run a game and uh, could give a shit what maybe I run. Who knows? All right. So if I move on, then that makes it sound like, I mean, I'm with you, so I like this. So I take the big things, the heavy hitters in the setting. And I bring, I th- you said earlier though that certain things like I just uh, if it's a goblin I can look at a goblin if it's kind of a one for one. Is there anything other than you know making notes in the book, which is anathema to my to my existence to write in any book that I own or a copy or something? I, I think I, I think you should Brett because then it could be like the Brett copy. Like it's like the the publisher copy or the novelist copy when they start writing in the margins, man. Oh yeah, that way it becomes much more valuable to, to my kids. They go, "What is wrong with this old man? You can't even read this chicken scratch." Yeah, the, your kids would be perfect, man. They could inherit those books and see all your little notes in the in the margin and you know treasure what, those little insights to your brain. That's actually a good idea. I know, man. <laughs> see, Look I'm telling you, man. Holy shit! Shit and shit them uh, diamonds over here, dude. Damn. Yeah. So the other thing I I'm thinking of while you while you're saying this is that. Even if it's a list of, oh, by the way, go through the adventure of the setting and say, look, these are, let's, and adventure is easier. Oh, in this game, there are five Bothans. There are six Twi'leks. There are six of this. There's seven of that. And, oh, there's 17 ogres and whatever. Knowing that whatever it is that you need to go look up so you don't have, probably a little more prep than I'm used to, but again, to say, oh, there's five ogres in this encounter. Oh, yeah, that seems pretty good. But then doing that quick compare and saying, wow, wow, I forgot how much they changed ogres. <laughs> or I forgot how much they changed dark nagas. Wow, fucking hell, this thing, will, this thing used to kick your ass. Now it's a complete right. nerf nothing. I should probably yeah. amp this up in some way. Right. Huh, okay. Or it could be where they, the, the players know, oh, uh, they really nerfed this one monster. It's not as bad as it used to be. And I think that kind of the, this will lead to one of my other, other pieces here, but... 
I think the backwards compatibility of certain things, you know, my, my initial thought when you brought this up was like, whatever, dude, they're, you know, ascending armor class, they got hit points, they have saving throws. How hard can this be? And now I think back to, you know, again, into the, um, let's search the unknown, keep them borderlands. That's basic D and D that's original D and D. Yep. Descending armor class spells are way different. Hit points are way different. Damage potential is way different. Makes sense. I think there are some pieces, though. The save or die thing, you you uh, also trigger this to me. I think sometimes some of the older versions from a making things fresh and new perspective can be interesting to lean into. Sure. Which I think is, <coughs> excuse me, um, one of those pieces where if you take an old module, like from the first edition of whatever game you're running, and say, wow, I didn't realize that, you know, the yellow musk creeper zombies were this goddamn terrifying. They don't look that way now. I'm going to lean into that a little bit. So I think from an inspiration perspective, you may have to do, to Sean's earlier point, that that type of thing almost becomes that set piece creature or a special thing that you want to that you want to really underscore. And it might make some sense then to put a little bit of thought or write writing prep or however it is that you do your prep. Put a little thought into that to make sure that you get to effectively highlight it. Because that creature that does fear now, hey, I'm, it's an extra special fear. It's fear or this thing because hey, that's it's special in some way. Things scale a little bit different too, uh, from one one edition to the next, right? Where five E has a gradual, your proficiency bonus doesn't change except for every what I think four levels. Don't quote me on that, folks. I I obviously could be wrong. I think it's three, three or four. three, and then four for a stat bump or something. Even fuck, stat bumps never happened in in right. OSR. Or even just setting a trap and trying to disable a trap, and then you've got, well, it's a DC 20 trap, so usually at level, you know, four or five, that's not a big deal, but uh, maybe five or six uh, in 5e, but you could do that in three, you know, 3e at third level fairly easy because you've got certain bumps or skills that aren't as... The curve isn't as steep. It doesn't like it's not a hockey puck. Hockey yeah. puck. <laughs> hockey puck. <laughs> hockey stick kind of graph yeah. in how that stuff progresses. That's a damn good point too, because I mean like we said kind of at the top, if all you're gonna do is say, Hey, I just want the I want NPCs in a city, right? You pull out the village of Hamlet or you pull out keep it on borderlands. I just want a building, some maps, and a place I'm going to basically homebrew off of these inspiration points, then some of this doesn't necessarily matter. Right. Right. But if you start looking at it and tear into it, that does make sense. And I do like the uh, – you're right because <clears throat> excuse me, the curve is different. I think it is interesting to – if you do that right and then you use the some of the old school like wow factor that certain things had, um, use them as set pieces, you know. That monster stuff or the leg gate's different. It's a it's a setting thing that really adds a little extra oomph to it. And <clears throat> then you don't run into that particular thing that is actually save or die when there really isn't such a thing as save or die. You could have it have the potential to do a metric shit ton of damage, which could engage in, say, 5e or any other system, the instant instant kill rule or option. You could use that. But that's, again, having the system mastery of what it was system-wise, and then into what it's going into is very helpful because then you can make the decent comparison. See, Brett, your style is simply just to do whatever at the table. A lot of time. Is my, well, is my guess, right? Like, you don't, you're not going to, you're not going to sit down and convert monsters. You're just going to make, you're just going to make up shit at the table and, and roll with it. Well, I'll tell you, you right? I have not run a module that's not been appropriate to the version of the game. But you don't run modules, do you? I have. I run White Plume Mountain. I've run. Oh, that's right. I've run White Plume Temple of Elemental Evil. I have done it for fun. My friends and I will get to go. Hey, we want to play an old school adventure. All right, I'll pull something out. <clears throat> Generally speaking, for a campaign, I don't. But when I have, and when I look at my first edition Greyhawk box setting, I'm like, hey, you know, I haven't played that in a while. I was mentioned to my buddy Lenny. He's like, yeah, first edition AD and D. We'll play that with that. You want to pull out some modules? We can go right through it. That'd be kind of cool. Kind of run it. In that older, older fashion, I'm like, yeah, that could be pretty cool. But again, I he asked me, would you use like Pathfinder or Five E? I said, no, it feels like I should use that version or that you know for the for that setting. Why? 
<clears throat> I think for that one is for us it's more nostalgia than anything else. Oh. And I think after listening to you here, I don't want to do the work to convert yeah. it because you just read the module. Use whatever's in there. Yeah, because I just read the module. Like, ah, oh, there it is. Off we go. Hey, save or die. Sorry. Instant yeah. super tetanus. <laughs> gonna play. Die, gonna motherfucker. Play, gonna play Pharaoh. Huh. Guess what? Everybody, we're playing first edition AD&D. Yep. Yeah. That's, I'm fortunate enough, though, that my group would be like, oh, sure, we can do that. I know there are some people that uh, will not play those games. Or right. don't want to. They like 5e, and they don't know the other game system. Um. My kids are both sponges enough. They said, hey, I want to play second edition AD&D. They'd be like, oh, cool, I haven't tried that yet. But there's a number of people who are much older than my kids. They'd be like, I just bought all these books, and I, I'm really into this. I don't want to have to go learn some other system right now. you know." So I can see why people would want to convert it. And I even I got like the Yoni Portal thing when I got that. And this, partly, again, I, I like books, and it's fun to fun to collect that stuff. But some of it is... AJ was asking me about D&D adventures, like pre-published ones that he could look at for 5e and steal ideas from. And I looked at my shelf, I'm like, huh, he, he won't be able to do anything with these. I mean, kind of, but it, it wouldn't. I don't think it would help him as much to see what a 5e adventure looks like. So we started looking up different things on DMs Guild and, and so on that are 5e based. To say, hey, oh, well, you got tails from the awning. Pro- yeah, like I said, that's one of the reasons I, you know, when I yeah. ended up with tails, I'm like, oh, this is perfect. I can. Chris Steele actually uh, gave it, gave me a copy of it. Anyway, point is, is that I can. I showed it to him. He's like, oh, this is really cool. He started parsing through it for ideas and maps and how to use certain monsters in some areas and stuff. And uh, <clears throat> I think there is, like I said, initially my thought was, well, convert. Oh, it's a lot of work. I don't know why you'd have to. You really don't have to do it, but. I think you're kind of convincing me on this one. Well, and I think a lot on the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the DMs Guild has had people convert them and then they just put a price tag on them. Okay, I haven't looked. I, I think I'd have to double check, but you know that way they can, then you don't have to do it. I know Stan Shin did a bunch of that, but I don't, I don't know if he's put them out on. I don't know what the policy is, is of taking an existing module, converting it, and then just relaunching it on. DMs Guild. Yeah, and then selling it. Huh. And then selling it, yeah. Interesting. So apart from Midnight that we mentioned, are there is Eberron the other the other setting system that you're really big to switch? Eberron is an interesting one. I don't think I would have to convert as much in the Eberron setting. One is because Eberron was done through Wizards of the Coast and kind of adheres to the three oh three five and doesn't have anything that's I mean, there are some unique um Warforged. Yeah, there's player character classes you could play that aren't aren't something you're going to find. I mean, they have an artificer class, but they some people may say, well, it's not it's not a true artificer class like it is in Eberron because there's some like gunslinging, I think, skills that are involved with it. But uh, the gist of it is there. But yeah, I think it would be. Um, like the monsters and stuff, I think you could use just straight out of 5e. Okay. Um, I don't think the conversion would be ha- have to be as heavy for that setting. There's it's, it's unique and different, but it's still Wizards of the Coast, where Midnight setting is Fantasy Flight Games, and, you know, they didn't want to... Uh, it's 3035 compatible GL except for the IP stuff. Right, yeah, which is pretty okay. much any. I mean, you can't use Beholder in your own adventure that you publish. Yeah, that you publish third party because that's wizard stuff. So the same thing with Midnight setting, but with with the uh, Eberron setting, you know, it's pretty. Hmm. I mean, yeah, you'd have to make what a Warforged is, but that's that's kind of different because that's a player character class. Sure, as an NPC, you would have to do it if you have like. Warforged monsters. Very true. Okay. Yeah. Same with shifters. So some of the classes would have to be, or races would have to be kind of brought up or made. You know, talking about this, you know, <clears throat> this just came to my mind, and this is odd to me, I guess. When I played um, first edition, second edition AD&D, it was Greyhawk and the Front Realms. That's what we played in. And 
whenever I think about those settings, I always think about it in terms of those rule settings, those rule systems attached to it. Um, the 3035, 4E and stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me. I distinctly remember when sometimes, well, not sometimes, but when systems change, went from 1E to 2E, and then there were no half-orc uh, player character races. Uh, the bard went from being a, you know, proto prestige class in first ed in back in the appendix of the player's handbook to an actual class. Um, and things changed. They modified how spells worked and so forth. And it was interesting to have my buddy, Eric and I would sit down and we would, we're looking at the different <laughs> source material we had for forgotten realms of Greyhawk. Like, well, there's half orcs all over this goddamn place. What, what, what happened to the half orcs? You know, what, what do we do with this? You know, we so we kind of mock up some kind of a, a way to make it function or whatever, and I think the more we talk about this, that there's such drastic differences from certain versions of the rules up. You know, four E looks nothing like one E, in my opinion, and I think when a when the setting tries to, and this is going to sound like I'm bashing on on Forgotten Realms, but I think it was just, it was just a it was a bad decision in my opinion. When one setting tries to constantly evolve to incorporate and encapsulate every new system version, and depending how drastically changed those versions are of the system, I think it can hurt the setting, right? Where this way, if you're doing it kind of more as a, as a labor of love or saying, look, I'm going to take Midnight and make it 5e compatible for my group, <clears throat> kind of almost as an homage or, hey, we're going to do the best we can with this and, you know, tweak it appropriately. I think that that would actually translate better to me than if somebody else had tried. <laughs> I guess if it, unless it, you know what I'm saying? It's almost like if it, if it glides across too many editions and versions, it gets muddier and muddier. I don't know. That just, that thought just hit me. I don't know if that. It could, I mean, it, it's, I mean, they had Eberron and 4E. Did they? I did not know that. Had, yep. They had a setting book for 4E. Uh, I don't know how things had changed. I don't own it, um, but I think, and I don't know how well it went over with the community. Um, mm-hmm. 40s kind of weird because it really divided up. Oh yeah, that was that was awkward. Yeah, it created quite a, quite a schism. So even if you're a fan of Eberron or uh, and that Eberron setting came out, if you're not playing 4E, you know they just kind of brush it off. But I, I mean, know. I think if people like the spirit of the setting itself, and I think that's, I think that's why people choose a particular setting. They like the spirit of it. So I get what you're saying. You're right. Forgotten Realms is unique because they really kind of, what do they do? Fast forward a timeline, 150 yeah, years. We or had crazy. Um, they had it like I know from one e to two e. They killed a lot of gods, so that's why you had no more assassin classes. <clears throat> Excuse me. They changed things around a lot because clerics work differently. So the gods would change, and the gods would die, or they would fast forward time, and suddenly dragonborn and tieflings are places where they never existed before. And half orcs are back, and gnomes were in a player character race for all, and they kind of were. Um, hmm. So the other thing I want to make, I want to ask you today, Sean, was: <clears throat> Are there any? Not even doesn't have to be D and D, but are there any other settings or modules or adventures that you would love to? To have the C redone, or do you got to hanker into uh, besides midnight type of thing? Anything that you'd think about? Well, I think I'm a fan of Eberron, and okay. I think that I don't, I don't, I would like to see a setting book come out for GMs and players um, for five E. Uh, do I think it needs to be done to play Eberron? No, not necessarily. Would it make it easier? Probably. Um, would I want them to screw with the setting from a timeline perspective? No, because I like where they, they place the original setting. It's two years after the last war and the Treaty of Thronehold. So, you know, a huge war had taken place amongst five kingdoms for the most part, including some of the other, I mean, some of the other countries had been involved. But that that's a good place to start a campaign with just that premise. And if they kind of fast forward with it or futz with it, it takes that away, which... I think strips a lot of the diplomatic and political and the tension piece that comes from a war that was really never, I mean, there was no, it didn't really end. It was a, more of a treaty in place. And so okay. it's, hmm. so I, I think some of the, and it's, and it's wizard. So I have plenty of the source books where I think the stats would be able to convert relatively easily. 
Unless, of course, you're going to like, you know, something where you're going to a different system altogether. Like Christian did a conversion, Christian Serrano. Savage um, World's guy. Sa- yeah. Savage Bloggers Network podcast. He's on the Manifest Zone. Big fan of Eberron. Does the Manifest Zone with Keith Baker. And he's got a Savage Worlds conversion for Eberron, yep. which is quite a bit trickier because you're going from Savage Worlds, which is pretty generic, does have fantasy rules. Yes. But, you know, there is no Warforged. There's no Watsy IP in any of Savage Worlds, so you have to kind of make, make it up. up some of that. Yeah. I'll tell you, for me, I've, I'm hoping that at some point either Watsy does it or I sit down and make it my own personal project. I still like Greyhawk. The original box set um, from back in the day, and I, I would lo- really like to see that become five eified. I think that would be cool. I uh, I don't know. I just I always had a soft spot for Greyhawk, and I've always had a lot of fun with it. I think a lot of the uh, the first edition setting and adventures before it hit second edition, and the second edition stuff wasn't wasn't terrible. Well, some of it was terrible, but I mean, it's not like I hated two e. But I would like to see. That particular setting in that time, and I think part of it for me is, like, like you're talking about with Ebron. You're not talking about well, I'll take Ebron, but advance it 100 years, or no. change it. You like as is. Yep. So I kind of like to see the Greyhawk setting as is turned into 5e. I think that would be pretty damn cool. Even yeah, but see, I did Greyhawk have a lot of stats? Like it's it just reminded me more of standard, standard. Like they didn't they didn't do anything in Greyhawk wouldn't have been considered kind of a house campaign for D&D at the time. Not drastically, no, but, I mean, that's where the fact that somebody sat down and said, hey, I should really redo Against the Giants and turn it into 5e. Hey, we should, you know, for Yawning Portal, the book, <clears throat> that type of thing. I, I, th- yeah, I think that would be cool just just to do it. Yeah. No, I, I think it would be certainly would see it as a good thing to do. The other thing that I guess where I was going with the timepiece is that I like the, maybe it's just because I'm kind of a grognard at heart for some of the shit, but that piece of the Greyhawk timeline right there in the box set, those those years are my favorite years that I adventured in when I was a kid. I would like to see that translated instead of saying, hey, this is after the Greyhawk War. Hey, this is after this other second edition thing. And I know that in third edition, when they brought Greyhawk back, like the Grand Duchy of Jeff was totally different. You know, giants had overrun it and, and craziness ensued. And I that was fun. I actually played that in my five, in my three zero and and three five campaign. You guys used to work with ages back, but I kind of like the original setting and what was happening at those time po- at those at those points in time. So that's uh, I think when I look at some of those settings, I look at some of the original ones from a points in time perspective. I like this. So if I was going to put the time and energy in it, I would want to do that from an adventure perspective. I think we talked that pretty well through. And honestly, man, I, I was not sold that you needed to do the work that you talked about doing originally with me. But uh, I think you got me sold, man. I think that I think you're right. Even if you don't, even if you wish to disdain balance as you run it, you still need to fully understand it. Not necessarily master, maybe a strong word, but you need to understand it. So that way you know what the hell you're doing when the time comes and the legate shows up in midnight and you know how to make it work right. Well, I mean, three zero and three five certainly has its ability to. I mean, they had a lot of classes, a lot of prestige classes. Yep. Um, you know, it definitely had its power creep. And if you, if the setting that you're playing that in accommodates that, or or maybe it doesn't, and you want it to, or whatever the case is, and it's not kind of balanced, even if you don't want to play the balanced piece. Um, again, what, what does that look like? I'll tell you one of the settings, or I should say systems, that I think a lot of the adventures seem to hold up really well. Now, I have not read, I have a copy of the 7th edition of Call of Cthulhu, but all previous mm-hmm. editions of Call of Cthulhu, unless you're a Call of Cthulhu connoisseur, it's very difficult, at least for me, to determine what all the very fine points are. My mastery of those of those various different incarnations, um, you know, versions 1 through 6, are not are not as deep as they are in, in like D&D or, or White Wolf. Um, but, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that that is one of those systems, those earlier adventures. If you were to pull out 5th edition Call of Cthulhu, you could damn near run, to my knowledge, you could run every adventure they've ever published. 
previous right, up to that. It's they're so backward compatible and very forward compatible up until seventh. Seventh is a larger from what I have parsed through my book. Uh, fair deviations in how things operate, but everything up to that, the character sheet looks really the same. The stats are the same. How they're derived is the same. How you use them is the same. The monsters, they're Cthuloid creatures, man. If they have 50 hit points and drive you slightly insane or 60 hit points and drive you slightly more insane, it doesn't really matter much. Right. But that system is one of those that, it, um, from a translation perspective, version to version, it's pretty lickety-split. That one's not hard at all, Yeah. which is one of the things I think is really cool about that one, that you could get into it at any version. And uh, as long as you could find a module... Or adventure setting, you know, Dunwich or Red Hook or whatever, you could you could fucking run with it. It always worked. Cool, man. Good times, good times. You got anything else on this one? I thought this was. I wasn't sure how how hard it would be to convince me or get me off of it, but uh, yeah, you got me, brother. I think I, I think you're right. It's the right thing to do, man. It's the right thing to do. Maybe not. Maybe <laughs> maybe 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 not. Maybe I'm not. probably not gonna. I'm not gonna convert shit. <laughs> we're just gonna talk about it. We're not really gonna do it. <laughs> we're gonna talk about converting. We're not gonna do it. That's right. Cool, man. Uh, All right. Got anything else? Are we good? Yeah. We're, no, I think that's it. We're both kind of faded. <laughs> He yeah, had no, he had the day off. He napped all day, and I was I was stuck in the office all day. Quite relaxed. Uh, man, I should have taken the day off. It would have been yeah. way better. Yeah. No. All right. What are we talking about next week, Brett? Well, next week I was thinking about dipping back in the player series. We had some people talk about gaming with kids. I got I got stopped three different times at GaryCon. People asking about that, and then Jared Rasher brought something up over at Misdirected Mark about narrative positioning and so on. So I'm kind of tempted to throw. He had something about it was positioning and permission, and it was, sounded pretty cool. I was reading through that, and I'm like, damn, I could steal that idea. That, that'd be a damn good topic. So it's going to be one of those one of those things I mentioned. I'm not sure which one yet, but goddamn, it's going to happen. One of those. Absolutely. And, you know, folks, if if you have experience converting, and, and Sean, I tend to use D&D because it's the, the monster game, right? Everybody, <clears throat> not everybody, but a lot of people can at least reference back and forth to it. If you have done conversions, full hard, if full hardcore in, you know, light and loose. If you've done it for multiple systems, you're like, man, I would never do it for, you know, WEG, Star Wars, to anything else. Oh my God, such a pain in the ass. Always, you know, don't do that. Or, hey, I use this to, or this version of Star Trek to this other one. Or if you have a method that you've used to convert that really helps you do it, we'd love to hear about it because it's one of those things where you, you can look at it. And, you know, Sean's right. And it, it can be, it looks like the right thing to do. And I could see where it'd be daunting. You know, if you don't have a level of rules mastery or you, you hear Sean and I talk about that, oh, I don't know if I know the rules well enough. Maybe somebody's got a better tool set or a method other than Google who else has done it for you if you want to do your own. Um, if you've got good ideas or even links to people who do have better ideas than we do, share them with us. It would be great to hear. Oh. We good, man? We are. All right. So this has been another episode of Gaming and BS. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett. Good night and good game and all. This, this has, has been a Litterbox, Litterbox Studio production. production.